0: 12 Byzantine Rulers, by Lars Brownworth. Episode 12, Basil I. Welcome back. Last time we talked about the Empress Irene, whose disastrous reign saw the virtual collapse of Byzantine prestige in the West, the creation of a rival empire, and the coronation of a rival Emperor Charlemagne, who was given the title Emperor of the Romans as a direct insult to the Eastern Empire. The Byzantine Empire was on the run, with its frontiers collapsing on every side, the nightmare of iconoclasm ripping it apart, and a succession of weak emperors barely resisting the decay. The problems looked insurmountable, certainly more than the Athenian-born orphan Irene could handle. But the empire's salvation was only 60 years away, and was largely due to the efforts of two men, a patriarch named Photius and the emperor Basil. The iconoclastic controversy, which had flared up again with the fall of Irene, was finally ended 40 years later, ironically enough, by another woman, the Empress Theodora, who restored the veneration of icons and was sainted for her efforts. She ruled as regent for her son Michael III until the young man, chafing at his almost total exclusion from public life and furious that he was forbidden from seeing his mistress Eudocia, overthrew her and forced her to retire to a monastery. Michael, who has acquired the nickname The Drunkard, was hardly the inebriated buffoon that subsequent historians have made him out to be, but he was a weak ruler who had an annoying tendency to leave the government in the hands of his favorites. As the historian Ostrogorsky said, he was not great, but there was greatness in his time. The power behind Michael's throne, and that greatness to which Ostrogorsky refers, was his uncle Bardas, a man with both charisma and vision, whose chief goal was to restore some control over the eastern territory lost to the Saracens. With this in mind, he led two expeditions into Asia Minor and Armenia, defeating and killing the caliph Omar and striking the first blow in almost a hundred years against the advance of Islam. In the West, however, he was not as successful, unable to hold either Sicily or the remnant of Italy from Saracen or Western invasions. But however talented Bardas was, his efforts in the military field were surpassed by that of the patriarch Photius in the spiritual one. Photius, one of the most famous scholars of the Middle Ages, probably owed his advancement to the fact that his brother married the emperor's aunt. Immensely educated and possibly somewhat self-taught, he curiously enough never learned Latin, but was one of the most respected teachers of his day. After his brother's marriage, he steadily rose through the ranks, moving from captain of the guard to chief imperial secretary, and even taking part in an embassy to Baghdad. When the patriarch fell from grace, Bardas picked Photius to be his successor, inducted him into the priesthood, and within a week had confirmed him as patriarch. On the one hand, it was a curious choice. Though a great statesman, Photius had little real interest in theology and even less ecclesiastical experience. But he came to the office with a remarkably clear vision and a determination to challenge, in any way he could, Pope Nicholas I's claim of universal spiritual authority. A year earlier, two important events had occurred. Horus I of Bulgaria had sent an ambassador to Constantinople to ask for people to instruct him in the ways of Christianity, and a group of Scandinavian and Slavic raiders, who called themselves the Rus, had besieged Constantinople, not exactly threatening to the city, but giving everyone a good scare. In these events, Photius saw the perfect opportunity. He commissioned two monks, Constantine and his brother Methodius, and sent them to bring Christianity to the Bulgarians, Moravians, and the Rus. Though they were unsuccessful in converting the Moravians, the two brothers did their work well. Constantine took the Slavic name of Cyril, and realizing that they lacked an alphabet, he set to work creating one. The alphabet he made, based on his native Greek characters and called Cyrillic after him, became the basis for the writing systems of most of Eastern Europe, and pulled Bulgaria firmly into the Byzantine Orthodox sphere of influence, where it remains to this day. As for the Rus, they would firmly embrace both Byzantine culture and religion, become famous for their orthodoxy and onion domes, and when at last the Russian empire was formed, they called their capital city the New Constantinople. The Byzantines had struck a huge blow against Roman universalism, and they had announced that fact to the world in a dramatic fashion. Though militarily, the gains Bartas made were not long term, and the gains Photius made would take time to bear fruit, clearly there was a new spirit in the air, in energy and daring not seen since Justinian's day. It only awaited an emperor who could exploit it. Just as clearly, however, was the fact that Michael III was not that man. As he devoted more and more of his time to drinking and horse racing, he paid virtually no attention to the running of the state, turning over all of his responsibilities to capriciously picked favorites. For the moment, his uncle Bardas ran things. But sometime after the year 863, to his great ruin, he met one of the most grasping, dangerous men of the age, an Armenian peasant named Basil. Basil's family had been relocated, probably from Armenia, to the Byzantine province of Macedonia, hence the reason his successors were called the Macedonian dynasty. And from there, he had been taken prisoner by the Bulgarians, spending a part of his childhood in captivity. He escaped in his mid-twenties, and was fortunate enough to get a job as a groom in the household of the Caesar Bardus. Totally illiterate, as he was to remain for the rest of his life, unscrupulous and dirt poor, he had two impressive attributes going for him. He was good with horses, and had an immense physical strength. How he caught the Emperor's eye is somewhat debatable. He either subdued one of the Emperor's horses that no one else could tame, or he threw a giant of a man across the room during a wrestling match while the Emperor was watching. Either way, with Michael this was apparently enough to win the Emperor's friendship, and he was soon appointed High Chamberlain, a job usually reserved for only the most well-connected courtier. Michael had immediate plans for his new confidant. In his youth he had been forced to give up his mistress, Eudocia, and had been looking for a way to respectably introduce her into his court. Thinking he now had his chance, he forced Basil to divorce his wife, with whom he already had a son, and marry Eudocia. The emperor, however, clearly intended to keep his former mistress for himself, and it seems to have been a common rumor at court that when Basil and Eudocia had their first child, Leo, he was in reality Michael's son. Whatever Basil thought about this rather bizarre and humiliating arrangement is of course not recorded. Sitting this close to the heady scent of imperial power, he was busy turning the emperor against his uncle Bardas. He started a whispering campaign, always hinting darkly that Michael's life was in danger as long as his uncle lived. Bardas heard about the rumors when he was in the middle of planning an expedition against the island of Crete, which had been taken over by the Saracens and was now one of the foremost nests of piracy. Furiously disregarding the advice of friends to flee to safety, the Caesar decided to confront his accuser directly. The move seems to have caught Basil off guard and he could reassure Bardas only by taking part in an elaborate ceremony in the Hagia Sophia, formally swearing that he bore him no ill intent, and to show his seriousness, using a small amount of the blood of Christ as ink, on loan from a reliquary in the Hagia Sophia, signing his mark, since he couldn't write his name, on a document which stated the same. Bardas, who had always considered Basil a minor irritation, just another drinking companion for the emperor to waste his time with, was mollified, and the three continued with the army on the planned expedition. As they were crossing through Asia Minor, Bardas again heard rumors that his life was in danger. Putting his faith in the fact that his dominating presence would cow Michael, he appeared before the emperor dressed in his finest cloak to hear the morning report as if nothing was out of the ordinary. It was a fatal mistake. Just as he was turning to the emperor to suggest that the army begin to move again, Basil drew his sword and killed him with one blow. Michael, who had probably known about the plot all along, didn't make a move in protest and immediately wrote a letter to Photius explaining that Bardas had been guilty of treason and had been executed. With that, the expedition to Crete was over. Michael returned with the army back to Constantinople and crowned Basil co-emperor. It had been an exhilarating rise for the peasant-turned emperor, but the situation couldn't last. Basil was far too ambitious to play second fiddle, and Michael's capriciousness was a constant reminder that Basil could just as quickly be thrown down again. As if to drive home this point, within a few months of Basil's coronation, Michael began to favor another courtier. Relations between the two men quickly broke down, and Basil, fearing for his safety, and in any case unwilling to share the throne, decided to get rid of Michael once and for all. Attending a banquet with the emperor, he slipped quietly out of the hall and headed for the imperial sleeping quarters. Using his formidable strength, he bent back the bolts of the door so it couldn't be locked, and then returned to the festivities. When the emperor retired for the night, Basil waited for him to sleep, then entered it with a band of his followers. Hurling the guard aside, he hacked off the emperor's hands, leaving the dying man in agony until another one of his men finished him off. With the foul deed accomplished, Basil then hurried across the waters of the Golden Horn to the great palace to ensure a smooth transfer of power. The next day, in an impressive ceremony, he crowned his wife, the dead man's mistress, as empress, and attended to business as usual. The murder was greeted with remarkably little outrage. Even the patriarch didn't say a word. Michael had been an unpopular ruler, lavishing his time and money on his horses and sparing hardly a thought for his subjects, and they in turn had not concerned themselves with him, simply shrugging at his death and getting on with their lives. As for Basil, Finally free to act on his own, he set a radically different course than his predecessor, making it clear that he had no intention of being a mere figurehead. His first action upon becoming sole ruler was to get rid of Photius. This decision was somewhat surprising since the two men shared the desire to increase the power and prestige of the empire, and Photius had not said a word of condemnation about either of the particularly grisly murders that Basil had committed to gain the throne. But the patriarch was deeply unpopular in the capital precisely because he had kept silent on the subject. And it was even darkly whispered. He muttered secular Greek poetry under his breath instead of the liturgy during mass. But more importantly for Basil, he had carefully engineered a schism between the eastern and western churches. The trouble was in the way he had come to power. Michael III had called a council of eastern bishops, deposed the previous patriarch, and put Photius on the patriarchal throne. All without consulting the pope, thus challenging his claim to be the spiritual head of the church. When the pontiff protested, Photius had written a letter essentially telling the pope to mind his own business. He had then added insult to injury by converting the Slavs to the eastern Rite, further diminishing papal authority, and setting himself up as an equal to the pope. Basil had no problem with any of these actions, and in fact a few months earlier had been vocal in his support of Photius but he had already set his sights on other goals. He saw himself as the new Justinian, and like his famous predecessor, he was determined to reconquer the Western territories. This goal would be made much easier with the active support of the Pope, and for Basil, unconcerned as he was about religious affairs, the sacrifice of his patriarch was a small price to pay. He deposed Photius just as the patriarch had won his struggle, and recognized papal supremacy once again. This, however, did not mean that he had any intention of letting that supremacy actually mean anything. He made sure that he, not the papal delegates, ran the council that deposed Photius and passed the verdict. And when a few weeks later a Bulgarian embassy arrived, he invited the pope's men to attend, but left no doubt who was in control. Boris I, king of Bulgaria, had long been playing off Rome against Constantinople. And when his ambassadors arrived in the queen of cities, they asked a simple question. Now that Bulgaria had converted to Christianity, to which see did it belong, Rome or Constantinople? Basil responded with typical cunning. There were five great bishoprics in the Christian world, four in the East and one in Rome, and since both he and the Pope had a vested interest in the answer, he excused Constantinople and Rome and referred the question to the three supposedly neutral bishoprics, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. However, Since all three were in the East, they came back with the predictable answer that Bulgaria should follow Constantinople. Bulgaria embraced the Orthodox faith that endures to this day, and the Pope's delegation could only leave in frustrated disappointment. Basil next turned his attention to the East, where both the Saracens and a heretical sect called the Paulicians were harassing his border. Personally leading the bulk of his army, he swept through Asia Minor, capturing the city of Tefricay, the main Paulician stronghold, and killed their leader, effectively neutralizing them. The next 10 years saw a continual if slow advance against the Saracen, with Basil's brother even capturing the important fortresses of Samosata and Zapetra. In the west, the long-delayed expedition to Crete came to nothing, as well as the defense of Sicily, whose last imperial stronghold of Syracuse fell in 878. But Basil met with spectacular success when he invaded the Dalmatian coast, kicking out the Saracens and returning it to imperial control. He then reconquered the Italian coastal cities of Ortranto and Bari, giving himself an excellent bridgehead from which his brilliant general, Nicephorus Phocas would conquer virtually all of southern Italy before the end of the century. Having laid the foundations of a military reconquest, Basil turned to the navy, patiently rebuilding it and turning its disciplined ranks into the most formidable force the world had ever seen. Byzantine power in the next centuries was largely based on this navy, which cleared the sea of pirates and paved the way for increased trade and an economic boom. It was around this time that Basil decided to recall Photius. The Pope was furious with the way he had dealt with the Bulgarians and was now an unlikely ally, negating any benefit the Emperor could have expected by replacing his patriarch. Realizing that Photius had been sacrificed in vain, Basil recalled him to the capital, and, in a sign of his restored favor, entrusted the education of his children to the ex-patriarch's care. Then, when the office of patriarch became vacant less than a year later, Basil had him elected to the position once again. Photius's influence was felt immediately, not only in the increased missionary ties to most of the Balkan Slavic tribes, but in a new and bold plan of the emperors. Just as Justinian had been the great lawgiver, so too would Basil, never mind the fact that he was illiterate, He had the foremost scholar of his day available, and he announced that he would revise Justinian's law code. The project was never finished in his lifetime, but he did produce a handbook called the Prochiron, which was a collection of the most important and applicable legislation, as well as an interesting summary of the rights and responsibilities of the emperor and patriarch. Now, instead of having to wade through the complex digest of Justinian, not to mention the centuries of precedent which followed it, Judges could refer to the handbook for a vastly simplified reading. While Photius worked on the Prochiron, Basil, once again imitating Justinian, turned to massive building projects. There had been virtually no public buildings made in nearly a century, and several of them were in dire need of repair. The building that needed most attention, however, was, ironically enough, Justinian's great church, the Hagia Sophia. The great western arch had been damaged in an earthquake and was threatening to collapse. Basil shorted up just in time and added new decorations, including several mosaics. He next turned to the Church of the Holy Apostles, the traditional burial place of the emperors which had been founded by Constantine and then rebuilt by Justinian. He next turned to the Church of the Holy Apostles, the traditional burial place of the emperors, which had been founded by Constantine and then rebuilt by Justinian. It was once again in need of repair and Basil had it completely rebuilt, covering it mosaic, marble, and gold. Hardly a building in the capital escaped his attention. Most of the churches had their wooden roofs replaced with or stone, their walls freshly covered, and their floors repaired. Nor was his attention limited to religious buildings. A new treasury was built for the great palace, as well as new public baths and an ornamental gate. By the end of his reign, so many palaces were constructed with gleaming roofs and glittering mosaics, that he could boast of turning Constantinople into a vast treasure house that was itself a treasure. Basil had stamped his mark on the city, but he wanted to do more than just repair existing buildings. And so he marshaled all of his energy and resources for a new church. This was to be his Hagia Sophia to rival Justinian. It was officially dedicated to the Virgin Mary, Saint Nicholas, Saint Michael, and Elijah, but most referred to it simply as the new church or Nia. Built within the palace grounds, it was his supreme architectural triumph, cascading domes covered in gold, which could be seen gleaming far out to sea. Its interior was filled with mosaics, with every available space encrusted with gold, silver, and precious stones. By all contemporary accounts, it was a truly remarkable building. Unfortunately, not a single trace of it remains. By this time, Basil could look back on a long and successful reign, His enemies, both eastern and western, were on the run or had been brought to heel. The Slavs and Bulgars had been converted. The system of laws had been reformed, and the city itself was a testament to his greatness. The only thing that remained was to ensure the succession, and with four healthy sons, that didn't seem to be a problem. Nor would it have been if his oldest son, Constantine, had survived. The only son of his first wife, he was perhaps the only human being that Basil ever really loved and his unexpected death threw Basil into a depression from which he never recovered. He had always disliked his second son, Leo, believing him to be Michael's child, and with Constantine's death, it turned to outright hatred. Believing that his beloved son's death was God's punishment for the way in which he had reached the throne, he went to more and more desperate extremes until his depression began to verge on insanity. In such moods, the only man who could comfort him was Photius, who, for reasons of his own, played on the emperor's emotions, holding a seance to establish contact with his son, and even going so far as to canonize the dead Caesar. Photius wanted to prevent the succession of Leo, the emperor's second son, because he rightly feared that it would result in his fall from power. With the emperor in such a mental state, it wasn't hard for him to convince Basil to imprison the young man. The prince's relationship with his father had never been strong, even in the best of times. When he was younger, Leo had refused to give up his mistress Zoe, and when Basil found out about it, he had rained blows down on his son until the blood came. Now with Photius' urging, the unstable Emperor threw him into prison and threatened to put out his eyes. Basil soon regretted his rashness, probably because public pressure began to build to release the popular Leo, and after a few weeks he let him go. The incident cannot have helped the reputation of the aging Emperor or improved the relationship between the two, And it was probably this, as much as anything else, that convinced Leo that his life was in danger every moment that the emperor remained alive. Basil, for his part, threw himself into hunting, the one activity that would relax him, retiring to a country palace particularly known for its stags. And it was here in 886 that he died in somewhat mysterious circumstances. The official story was that while hunting, he caught sight of a magnificent white deer, Giving chase, the animal suddenly turned on him and caught its antlers in the emperor's belt, dragging him for 16 miles before a rescue party came up and cut him free. When they had carried him back to the palace, it was found that he had ruptured his stomach. They made him as comfortable as possible, but it was no use, and he expired nine days later in agony. What a 74-year-old, somewhat senile emperor was doing hunting by himself is, of course, a good question. And the story is made even less credible by suggesting that Basil, always known for his great strength, couldn't kill the animal or at least cut the belt himself before he was dragged 16 miles. What seems more likely is that his son was involved and the hunting story was a cover. The head of the rescue party was led by the father of Leo's mistress, a man who had everything to lose if Basil lived. And Leo, even if he wasn't directly involved in his father's death, at least allowed it to happen. Given the character of the man, It was perhaps fitting that Basil's reign ended as it had begun, in treachery and murder. But it had been in almost every other respect a spectacular rule. He had brought prestige back to the empire through military victories and extended its influence through the conversion of the Slavic tribes. He had found the empire in disarray and had left it the strongest power in Europe. He had reformed the administration and law code, founded universities, and adorned his capital on a scale not seen since Justinian's day. Though not a single one of his buildings is left standing today, and his mosaics have long since crumbled to dust, perhaps his greatest gift to the empire was the inauguration of a stable dynasty, which would add to the gains he made and rule over a Byzantine golden age. Join me next time as I look at his great-great-grandson Basil II, who, a century later, was to bring the empire to its height of prestige and glory. Twelve Byzantine Rulers is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, The Forgotten Byzantine Empire That Rescued Western Civilization. Look for Lost to the West on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. Visit us at 12 byzantinerulerscom